Hi, I'm Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. Election concerns continue to unfold in Arizona. Republicans have filed several lawsuits challenging how Maricopa County conducted its voting. Joining us to discuss the developments, we have Jacqueline Timmer, founder and director of the election security group, American Voters Alliance. Jacqueline Timmer, thank you so much for joining us in the Capitol Report. Thank you for having me. Jacqueline, votes are still being counted in Arizona two weeks out. Uh, there was a lot of chaos and confusion in this uh, particular election. Uh, we know Kerry Lake has uh, yet to concede, but other Republicans, uh, maybe not as high profile as her, if you could get us up to speed what they're uh, doing and where do you think things stands right now in terms of some of these key races? Right, well, you know, <laughs> Arizona is an interesting, interesting race. It mirrors a lot of what we saw in 2020. And with that, we're seeing the same irregularities, the same nonprofit involvement, the same patterns of issues uh, that are more or less new to the election system. So with a lot of the races going on right now, there's contention. As you said, Carrie Lake has not um, conceded the race. I know that the attorney general candidate for the Republican Party has filed a lawsuit um, and is joined by the RNC in that lawsuit. As far as, you know, what what's taking place here because there were so many irregularities in the count that it likely could have affected the vote. You know, we hear so many different things. We get fragments. Uh, you did in passing there just mention nonprofit uh, involvement. I'd like you to elaborate on that. But, uh, you know, a lot of people don't even want to have this discussion. But how widespread was the situation where we saw tabulators down? And should this be enough to draw uh, widespread attention and scrutiny? Well, I think that's a great question, and the question of widespread is always an issue, but I think the other aspect or the, the flip side to that is the location of the issue, because right now there's a huge conversation around disparate impact of voters and voter suppression. We're seeing it along racial lines, we're seeing it along political lines, and so when you have a particular regional area where machines are down or you're having a particular issue with, say, military ballots, for example, as we saw sometimes in 2020, you have questions along those partisan lines of where those issues are occurring. And so any type of election issue, especially in the functional administration of that, is a major problem that should be looked into, especially if it falls along geographical lines that also fall along partisan lines. Now, with the nonprofit involvement, that speaks to our larger investigation of what we've seen as a pattern actually going back to the time of Bush v. Gore. In 2000, you start to see a shift in the election administration process where it's no longer transparent and inclusive to the American people, but it actually starts to move behind closed doors where you have nonprofits and third-party vendors that become an immediate and intimate part of the election process in a way that pushes America out of the counting room. And we're seeing this pattern um, from the time of 2000, very prevalent in 2020 with the Zuckerberg nonprofit involvement, which of course was only a drop in the bucket. Our investigations have found over $1.6 billion in monies and services that went into the election administration aspect in 2020 alone. And we're seeing a lot of those same patterns in 2022. These same nonprofits are involved. We're seeing public-private partnerships. There are issues with the voter rolls. In Pennsylvania in 2020, over 80 leftist nonprofits had direct front-end access to the voter rolls that allowed them to put people into the voter rolls. And we're seeing that same access, those same partnerships continuing nationwide as we move forward. 
Now, my producers are telling me in my ear right now, just now, that the uh, race for attorney general, you have the candidate there, Republican, I believe, Abe uh, Hamaday, down by just 850 votes. Seems like an awful lot of nail biters as of late. That being said, uh, is this race headed for a recount? Well, I think that actually the question is, is a recount the right response? Because if you are recounting votes and there's the potential for fraudulent votes and there's a potential for non-fraudulent votes, a recount isn't going to determine that. Really what we need is a system overhaul. We need legislative reform in our election laws. They're antiquated regardless of which side of the aisle you stand on. But I think it is very likely that it will go to a recount. It falls within that margin of error. And again, the lawsuit acknowledges that that case or that that particular race falls within that margin of error. I think a lot of folks who thought uh, and believed that the 2020 election was fraught with election uh, fraud or irregularities held out hope that the courts would intervene, which of course never happened. Do you think that what we're seeing here in Arizona w will be uh, any different? I honestly don't know. I, I, I do think we have to take a step back and look at the question of fraud versus lawlessness. Because what we're seeing in Arizona, there are counties that are withholding certification because of the issues in Maricopa. We have this, this broad pattern that we're now seeing in the U.S. where there is an issue in the urban centers where the count takes weeks and weeks and then there's a slight margin in that victory and that's going to create questions and it would if there are issues it disenfranchises voters statewide and nationwide etc and so with that you know the courts may not be taking on these cases but we need to look at what we're bringing forth in our arguments are we advocating and asserting that fraud absolutely took place or are we looking at the fact that the way that the election was conducted in Arizona disenfranchised a certain population and did not disenfranchise another population in a way that would be contrary to election law, in a way that could potentially violate HAVA. So we need to look at the merits of lawfulness in the question of certification, as opposed to simply asserting that there is a fraudulent election. And the answer to that is advocating for transparency in the election process and intimately getting involved as citizens and activists. Jacqueline Timmer, thank you so much. Thank you. The Senate last week voted to advance a bill that would codify same-sex marriage into federal law. One of the major concerns by critics is that it would put religious liberty at risk. Some say it would force religious individuals or organizations to act against their will. To discuss the bill, we spoke with Jay Richards, a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation with a special focus on religious liberty. Jay Richards, thank you so much for joining us on the Capitol Report. My pleasure. Jay, uh, the Respect for Marriage Act, which recently passed uh, with bipartisan support in the House and the Senate, has many concerned on the conservative side, specifically when it comes to impacting uh, their sincerely held religious beliefs. If you could, uh, help us to understand how this might undermine uh, religious liberty. Absolutely. I mean, we already saw what happened after the Supreme Court decision uh, called Obergefell in 2015 led to people like Jack Phillips of Masterpiece Cake Shop being persecuted for their religious beliefs with respect to marriage. Unfortunately, the so-called Respect for Marriage Act will make that much worse. So in this case, Jack Phillips, for instance, uh, he was he was targeted by a civil rights commission in, in Colorado under the Respect for Marriage Act. He could be 
uh, taken to the cleaners legally by the Department of Justice and by private citizens suing him in civil court. So this actually amplifies the threats to religious liberty around the marriage question, unfortunately. So if you could break that down a little bit further for us, how would this new legislation expose uh, people of faith and institutions uh, of faith to uh, serious litigation? So the key thing to notice is that there's a, there's a sort of fig leaf religious liberty provision in the bill right now, but what it does is it actually protects religious organizations such as churches. So in other words, it protects a priest in a Catholic church. He will not be compelled to conduct a same-sex marriage. On the other hand, what about religious uh, organizations that are adoption agencies, Catholic or Protestant adoption agencies, which want to place children in parents with a mother and a father? They could, under this law, actually be in violation of civil rights. And again, uh, get sued by private citizens and get charged by the de federal Department of Justice simply for maintaining their views of marriage as be between a man and a woman. That's the kind of thing that's likely to happen, as well as just individual religious citizens working in, in secular workplaces. Really appreciate the context and clarity there. Uh, now, Jay, is there a happy medium here that would protect everyone involved rather than imposing one side or the other? For instance, I believe Senator Mike Lee proposed an amendment which would address um, the religious freedom issues that are at stake? That's right. I mean, there's still this broad question about the nature of marriage, but setting that aside, the question about religious liberty, uh, we think would actually be taken care of by Mike Lee's robust protections, which protects not just churches and religious institutions explicitly, but individuals and religious affiliated organizations. But note that Mike Lee's uh, amendment has not gone anywhere. And so my, my challenge to people who claim that the current bill would protect religious liberties, if they're serious, why haven't they adopted the Lee Amendment? And if they're rejecting the Lee Amendment, what do they know that they're not saying? Jay, why do you think there uh, has been a rather large number of Republicans who have gone for this? Honestly, I think in some cases it's naivete. I think some Republicans actually uh, sort of believe or half believe that this will do the trick with religious liberty. But I also think, frankly, many of them just want to get the marriage debate off the table. They imagine uh, that somehow if they vote in favor of this bill, that it will take the question about same-sex marriage off as a, as a political topic of discussion. They think it doesn't poll well in their favor. And they want to talk about things other than this. I think they're sorely mistaken. I don't think this will actually make the issue go away. I think that they're just going to uh, encourage the other side to, to double down uh, and go even farther. Now, even though it's passed both chambers, is there still a chance to uh, stop it? Absolutely. And so the, the vote initially was just a, was for cloture, so essentially to allow debate on the bill, but there still have to be two other votes like that that would need to overcome uh, uh, the, the filibuster, so they'd need 60 votes before coming to a final vote. So if even, say, three of those Republicans changed their minds after debate, then that would actually kill it in the Senate. Jay Richards, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. I just want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a rating and a review as it really goes a long way in helping us spread the truth. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Lance at NTD, and we'll see you soon.